This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mummer's seat, don't you? In here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky out in Texas. Hello, I'm still here in Texas. <laughs> still there in Texas. Still here. <laughs> Feels like I will never leave now that we're on lockdown. Well, have you been doing any preparation or... What what have you been up to in, um, in your lockdown? I have just been doing schoolwork. I've been super jealous of everyone who's like, on lockdown, I like learned how to do this thing. And I'm just like, I want to just sit and cross-stitch and watch shows, but I have like reading I have to do, uh, which is so lame. Aww. But it's fine. Um, there was a, a, on Twitter the other day, someone posted a picture of their little puppy who was like snuggling a potato. And I put a caption on it and I was like, me, an Idahoan in Texas during quarantine. I thought, oh. it, I thought it was very funny. I'll see if I can find it and post it to the Facebook group because it, yes. it was a solid joke in my opinion. Oh. <laughs> but what have, you, what have you been doing in lockdown and quarantine? Staying super busy. I feel like I'm a little bit more busy than usual because I've been making all these videos for our social media pages and finally bit the bullet and I, I've been talking about buying a bidet for years and I finally <laughs> got one. <laughs> Much to my wife's dismay, she was so upset. I, I told her, I was like, I have a present coming in the in the mail today. This is, this is like a week and a half, two weeks ago. And I said, you should open it up. It, it'll be an Amazon package. And I got a phone call and I got a message from her and it was like, Anthony, <laughs> I can't believe you did this. So it's great. I seriously, I highly recommend. Have you installed it for everybody. and everything? Oh yeah, I installed it. It's it works like a dream. It's got a solid stream. It's that is hilarious. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's very strange. Uh, no, we have obviously we haven't had anybody over to our house in a few weeks, so now everybody in the world knows now that it's on the podcast it is but, on the uh, podcast <laughs> so everyone can, will be rushing over to your house to try out your new bidet since no one has toilet paper <laughs> yep pretty much <laughs> oh boy anyway well let's uh <laughs> let's get to what the podcast is about shall we instead of just <laughs> yes and uh, this fella I'm going to talk about today his name was Kenneth McLennan number 3455 and my sources were his inmate file, Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, which I recommend everybody while you're in lockdown, just pull that website up, search something, and you'll go down some fun rabbit hole. I, I promise. Like, anything you're into, just search it. You'll 
find thousands of newspaper articles about it from all across the country. Ancestry.com, of course. His obituary from the Caldwell News Tribune, which was posted on his findagrave.com profile. A Wikipedia article on flagmen, railway workers, and a Wikipedia article on Lockalsh, Scotland. Kenneth McLennan was born on October 12, 1846, in Scotland. And searching for the name Kenneth McLennan in Scotland brought up a ton of hits on Ancestry.com. So I don't know anything certain about his childhood, but I did find one Kenneth McLennan that seemed promising in the uh, 1861 Scotland census, and he was living in Lucgalsh, Scotland. And uh, if this was him, his parents were Duncan, who was 74 years old, and Mary, who was 48. And he, he was 15 at the time, had two older sisters, Mary, who was 19, and Margaret, who was 16. Kenneth would actually state that his mother was English and his father was Scottish. This would be later on different census records in the United States. And reading up on the time period, it seemed that this region of Scotland was fairly depopulated after the, what was called the Highland Potato Famine occurred between the year of his birth, 1846, through 1856. And uh, most of the families had to move from the region to get into industries like fishing, sheep raising, kelp gathering, and weaving, because it was right there on the coast. His family could have been in any of these industries. If this was his family, I still I am uncertain. And there were several websites with like different Scottish family, and you could like join their mailing list and all that. But hmm. since I'm not a McLennan, I did not join any of these. But I bet Fair. you could find a wealth of information if you did. Uh, we know that his Kenneth actually left his parents' home at the age of 24 when he boarded a ship to the United States, and he arrived in New York City in 1869. And he came alone, which is something he would admit later on while he was incarcerated. And where or when he traveled is unknown, but I did find that he was living and working in Oregon in 1889-1890, around that time period, in Crook County at the Fagan Ranch on Cherry Creek. I went through the Dalles Times Mountaineer newspaper in Oregon and found that Pat Fagan's ranch raised sheep and alfalfa and there's probably a, a bunch of other things but that was uh the two things that pat fagan specifically was talking about in the newspaper about having a great alfalfa hay season that came early and his sheep were very healthy one important thing to know about kenneth at the top of this episode is that he's missing his right foot just above the ankle and it's never stated where or when he may have lost his foot but it was replaced with a wooden peg. And so throughout his trial and nearly every description of him, the term peg leg is brought up. And I don't want to offend anyone when I say that term. So it's all direct reference to how he was repeatedly described. I found him in the 1910 census living in Mayfield, Idaho, which is in Elmore County. And he listed himself as single and he worked as an engineer in the railroad business. In 1918, I found a newspaper uh, article saying that he had built a mausoleum for himself in Kohler Lawn Cemetery in Nampa, Idaho. And I was like, you know, why Why would somebody do this? But then I realized, you know, this is during the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, and it may have been the catalyst for, you know, an older gentleman like Kenneth to look into purchasing a mausoleum for himself, look mm. into what happens to his body if, if he catches it and dies. Sure. But he survives it. He still owned this mausoleum that was ready for him whenever he was ready to uh, make his departure. Now, in October 1922, Kenneth was working as a flagman and also described as a crossing watchman for the Oregon Short Line in Nampa. 
at the 9th Avenue corner where the street and the tracks crossed. Before automated cross guards at railroad tracks, the job was done by men who lived in these shacks near these, these crossing streets. A flagman is kind of like a flagger during road construction. They're assigned to protect workers repairing the tracks or doing any sort of work on the railways, as well as to stop automobiles from crossing when uh, trains are coming. So around October 15th, 1922, Kenneth had gotten into an argument with one of these passing vehicles, and he actually broke the windshield of the car. His bosses were alerted. Word had spread that he had been drinking on the job, and the assistant superintendent of the short line would later say that Kenneth was known for his periodical sprees with alcohol. And this was problematic not only because he was in charge of the safety of so many people, you know, the the trains themselves, the people crossing the tracks, but this is also the time of prohibition. Alcohol is illegal across the country, and as soon as the word spread to Kenneth's bosses, they... Uh, raided his little shack and found a gallon jug of liquor. Mm, That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, that was a whole lot during (laughs) Prohibition. That was a lot of alcohol. That's, I mean, not even, even outside of Prohibition, like a gallon of alcohols. Like a milk jug full of, I don't know, vodka or whatever is, that's, oof. oof. You know, and I was telling Becky that, and and she was just like, I think think you can still get gallon jugs of, like, whiskey nowadays. And, uh, yeah, I just haven't found that section of the liquor store, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's given a, a hearing by the short line company about two weeks after this event occurs. The windshield gets busted out, and he's fired. Did this 77-year-old Kenneth McLennan blame himself for this? No. He blamed a 66-year-old coworker and friend, fellow flagman named Sam B. Shalabarger who took over his position at the 9th Avenue crossing, and Kenneth believed that Sam had snitched on him. He returned to his cabin in the alley between 12th and 13th Avenue south in Nampa. Now, during the afternoon of March 14, 1923, so this is several months later, 77-year-old Kenneth McLennan pulled out his revolver, walked into his alleyway outside of his little cabin, and took aim at an old stump, and he shot the log twice and returned to his home. Unbeknownst to him, a neighbor girl actually watched from her window as she was sewing, and she called to her mother, Mama, that sounds like a shot. And she witnessed the second gunshot. She saw the smoke rising from the blast, and Kenneth returned to his house. Kenneth had been confined to the house for several days, vomiting and self-medicating with liquor. Later that evening, Kenneth actually walked to a pool hall where he said hi to some friends before walking to his former flagman shanty where Sam B. Shalabarger was now living and working. The shanty actually stood at the 9th Avenue crossing just north of the tracks next to the Overland Beverage Company. And nowadays that's near like the Roller Dome skating rink hmm. and around the corner from the historic Jacob P. Lockman house, which was stood there since 1906. So a couple little places if you're in Nampa and you're near that intersection, you'll know where this all went down. So Kenneth enters this shanty He raises his gun, and he fires one shot into Sam's chest. And he hobbles home, this lone figure with a cane and a peg leg. A conductor in an eastbound freight train passing by informed the night yardmaster that he saw the 9th Avenue flagman laying on the ground in front of his post as the train passed. The short-line clerk ran to the shack and discovered Sam's body, and it looked like Sam had had an accident and collapsed. So the railroad physician was called, and he investigated the body, and he discovered a bullet hole. So police were called, and this was now a murder investigation. They noted marks that appeared to have been made by a peg leg near the body. (laughs) Dang it. 
A special agent for the short line was brought in from Boise to aid in the investigation, and quickly Kenneth McLennan became the prime suspect. His jealousy and anger about losing his job and being replaced by Sam Barger was well known by the short rail administrators. What other evidence would they have that he did that? I'm just kidding. It's I always think that's so funny <laughs> that he had like as a if you have a peg leg, you know that your like pattern of footprint is going to be very distinct. Right. Like he was probably under the influence and exactly. not thinking yeah. straight. Yeah. He he had been ill for like two solid days, throwing up. There are several witnesses, and he had also been drinking, which was not helping him get over his sickness. So he was not in the right mind when all of this was occurring. Kenneth is actually arrested shortly before noon the next day, and he's actually spotted by the special agent of the short line playing cards in a pool hall. The agent asked Kenneth if he would accompany him to the police station, and Kenneth followed willingly, and he was grilled for three hours by Sheriff O.Y. Mason, County Attorney Logan D. Heislop, Special Agent of the Short Line William E. Edgley, and Nampa Chief of Police Larry Maloney. But they couldn't break Kenneth from his first story that he told them, which was he had no knowledge of any crime. He had been in bed for two days, ill, and being fed by neighbors. The uh, officers noted his face was swollen and his eyes were bloodshot and sweat perspired on his forehead, signifying that he had probably been drinking heavily. When questioned about a gun, he said he didn't have one. The officers requested a search of his home and Kenneth handed over his key and told them to search away. They discovered discharged forty-four caliber shells and after a thorough search found a gun concealed in a hollow door frame. It was hidden in this little hollow door frame, this little secret hiding place. It had five loaded chambers and one empty cartridge under the hammer. Kenneth denied knowing anything about the gun and insisted it had been planted by officers at his house. Witnesses were calling in and contradicting Kenneth's story. So two women became key witnesses during the coroner's jury. They were Mrs. Marie Benson, who lived in 9th Avenue North near the Flagman's shack, and Miss Daisy McDonald, who lived on 12th Avenue next to Kenneth's cabin. And Miss Benson spotted Kenneth standing by a wall of the old brewery near the scene of the slaying around 9.30 p.m. She was walking north near the middle of the street on her way home. She knew Kenneth by sight, and she thought it strange that he was leaning against the wall, muttering unintelligible words to himself. And she noticed something that was shining, flashes of street light as he turned it over in his hands, which was, of course, probably the gun. And after she passed him, she looked back and saw him stoop down and pick up his cane where she noticed further his wooden leg. Kenneth stumped down the sidewalk on the west side of 9th Avenue near the corner of the brewery building. The neighbor girl, Miss McDonald, revealed seeing Kenneth uh, fire the two rounds into the log earlier in the day, and police actually pulled the log from Kenneth's alleyway and discovered the two bullets lodged in the wood. Evidence. Now, officers searched through Kenneth's house for the exploded cartridges and found one in a coal bucket and the other in the ashes of the stove, partially fused as it was tossed in while a fire was burning. So he was trying to cover up evidence of firing these shots. When asked about all this evidence, Kenneth said he hadn't left his house for two days, neighbors had been bringing him food, and he owned the log with the holes in it, but didn't know how the bullets got into it because he was a light sleeper and would have heard gunshots outside of his home. The police chief told Kenneth that he had found a 44 caliber cartridge on the table in Kenneth's home, and finally, he admitted he owned the gun. And the gun in question had some interesting, distinct marks that intrigued officers. The description and discovery of these marks were described thoroughly in the newspaper. There were six killer marks cut into the barrel of the single-action pistol. 
two perpendicular, one horizontal, two perpendicular, and the sixth horizontal. The chief of police noted that these marks, quote, in the old days were scratched on gun barrel stocks by gunmen who wished to keep track of their victims. Mm. A vertical scratch, according to the ancient code, denotes a slaying, while a horizontal mark means a man shot at and only wounded. If the marks found on the gun taken from McLennan's home are of such nature, the total in point of shootings would be four killed and two wounded. These marks are more than mere scratches and apparently were made by a chisel or some heavy instrument. Hmm. That's really interesting. So with this evidence, uh, Kenneth is charged in a coroner's jury with slaying Sam Shellbarger. And due to the poor conditions of the Caldwell City Jail, which was described as unsanitary and offers little obstacle to a determined man bent on securing freedom, the jail has a long record of escapes. The uh, Caldwell Tribune noted that in the top of the county jail is a small turret that has been worn smooth by prisoners who have used that mode of exit. A prisoner equipped with a hammer or an axe on the inside could reduce the old structure to debris in about five minutes. It was so bad that Kenneth's crime brought out actually a drive to build a new Caldwell City Jail, and Kenneth was instead brought to the Canyon County Jail in Nampa. And I couldn't understand, like, if he committed the crime in Nampa, why they were discussing taking him to Caldwell. I wonder if the Canyon County Jail was full, if this is prohibition. Um, I wonder if there were less people right. in in the Caldwell Jail. Yeah, yeah, that definitely could be. On March 16, 1923, news actually reached the daughter of Sam Schalbarger, who was in the state asylum in Blackfoot. And the news hit her so bad that she died from, as her death certificate reads, exhaustion of psychosis with inanition, which is like exhaustion caused by a lack of nourishment, and listed psychosis depression as the second cause. And, you know, I only share this... Because crime affects not only the victim and the perpetrator, but also the whole families mm-hmm. of both sides, and sometimes to extreme degrees. Right. So, you know, Sam's widow, uh, the wife of Sam Shellbarger, lost her husband and her daughter mm-hmm. in just the shortest amount of time. Yeah. Uh, the only relief that she got was that Kenneth was formally charged with murder in the first degree, and Sam's brother-in-law had to serve as the complainant. And when the judge read the charge to Kenneth, he was visibly shaken. He was moved, uh, knowing that he was being charged with the death of his former friend. The following Sunday, a joint funeral was held for uh, both Schalbergers in the Color Lawn Cemetery. Sad. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that so tragic? Oh, my gosh. So sad. March 22nd, 1923, Kenneth is given a hearing on his case, and uh, the courthouse is packed. The newspaper said that the crowd, which occupied every available inch of space in the police courtroom, choked the corridors and filled the windows of the room. With seating capacity limited, spectators patiently stood, hour after hour, packed so that movement was well-nigh impossible, as an examination of witnesses dragged on through the morning and afternoon sessions. Five new witnesses were brought on to the stand, as well as the witnesses from the coroner's inquest. And these witnesses include the assistant superintendent of the short line, who talked about Kenneth's firing from breaking the windshield and drinking, a fireman from the short line who testified to seeing the body lying by the door of the watchman's shanty at about 11.15 p.m. that night, a Nampa traffic policeman named Frank Woodford, who testified he heard a gunshot shortly before 10 p.m. while he was watching a house, and he was later called to investigate the crime scene of Schalbarger around midnight, and he felt that the gunshot he had heard earlier in the evening was connected to this crime. 
an auto repairman who said he saw a man in the street next to the Overland Beverage Company with a peg leg, and the mother of Miss Daisy McDonald, who had also looked out the window and seen Kenneth taking shots earlier in the day at the log. The defense had zero witnesses, though Kenneth insisted that he had a roommate named John Blakely who was with him the whole night. Unfortunately, Blakely didn't take the stand at this point. The defense attorney, Clarence Hill, called for a dismissal of the case because he said the magistrate and the court had no jurisdiction over Kenneth's case. The evidence submitted didn't prove a crime was committed in Canyon County, nor had reasonable cause to hold Kenneth been shown. And the court denied this motion to dismiss the trial, and the case ended, and Kenneth was immediately placed in a car with Sheriff O.Y. Mason and Deputy Sheriff H.E. Felton and driven to Boise to serve some time in the Ada County Jail. Now, May 2nd, 1923, Kenneth is brought from Ada County back to Caldwell for arraignment in the district court. And, of course, arraignment is when the court formally charges a person with the crime. The next day, on May 3rd, 1923, before the judge could finish framing his question as to how Kenneth would plead, Kenneth interrupted with, Not guilty, not guilty. Immediately after his plea, his attorney, Clarence Hill, sprang to the judge with papers calling for a change of venue, stating that Kenneth wouldn't get a fair trial because he was acquainted with a lot of people in Canyon County, and there was widespread discussion following his arrest, and newspapers were prejudiced in reporting on him. The packet attorney Hill provided to the judge included... Pretty much the same articles I've been using in my research, including the notches, the, the little article talking about the notches in Kenneth's gun, which Hill said were printed to excite popular prejudice against the defendant. When I read that part, I was like, wow, that would make this man pretty guilty if he mm -hmm. has that many victims, if this right. is real. And uh, the prosecution said they would fight for this motion of uh, change of venue, and they, they wouldn't allow that to happen. So Kenneth is taken to the Canyon County Jail. And the next day, May 8th, 1923, the judge rules that Kenneth would not get a change of venue for his trial. He would be tried in Canyon County. The trial was set for May 22nd, and Kenneth's attorney filed a formal application for the suppression of certain evidence in the trial, including the 44 caliber revolver, some cartridges, a piece of melted metal, and half a pint of liquor, because Hill said that Sheriff O.Y. Mason and Larry Maloney had searched Kenneth's home with a pretended insufficient and illegal search warrant. Hill wanted these exhibits to not only be returned to Kenneth, but suppressed during the trial. The officers were called as witnesses, and uh, they said that they had been invited into Kenneth's home by Kenneth himself when he handed over the key, and the judge ruled that the search had been lawful, and those would continue to be evidence against him. Now, the trial began in Caldwell, May 22nd, 1923, and the jury selection information was so fascinating and so well written about. So there were 44 men who were drawn for the jury, but 31 had to be dismissed when they objected to the infliction of the death penalty. Most said that they didn't believe in it, while others stated that they wouldn't vote for conviction on circumstantial evidence, which is all that they had on mm. Kenneth. Uh, one man actually knew Kenneth, and most of the rest said that they had read about it in the newspapers and had talked it over with acquaintances. So they had set three days for the trial, and most of the first day was just trying to find a jury. Finally, the jury selection came down to nine farmers, a merchant, a real estate agent, and a retired man. 36 witnesses were named for the prosecution, and the defense lined up nine witnesses. 
The prosecution brought Kenneth's old boss, an assistant division superintendent, to the stand where he was asked why a hearing wasn't held at the short line sooner after Kenneth had busted the windshield out of that car. And the superintendent said it was because Kenneth had been too intoxicated at the time. And immediately the defense attorney jumped to his feet and asked that the jury be discharged and called for a new trial. And the judge denied the motion and the case continued. This character portrait of Kenneth in the minds of the jury would affect them knowing that he had issues with alcohol here. Now, the first day in court basically recounted the finding of the body and the police officer's investigation into Kenneth's home. Kenneth reiterated that he thought police were putting a job on him and the gun in question was was placed there. Uh, The second day of trial consisted of several witnesses who saw Kenneth near the 9th Avenue crossing the evening of the murder. And he seemed to talk to or make an impression on every person he passed that night. One woman said she heard the gunshot and was walking her niece home when she saw a man with a peg leg turn down an alley between 12th and 13th. Another passed Kenneth with his peg leg and cane under the light, and the man said good evening to him. And Kenneth replied, hello, buddy. (laughs) That's how I said hello, buddy. Anyway, the (laughs) prosecution also brought up a blacksmith who had known Kenneth for 20 years, both in Boise and Nampa. And he testified that he saw Kenneth's six-shooter that he believed was a colt about four years prior. And the gun was brought out, and the blacksmith stated that it was the weapon he had seen in Kenneth's possession. Defense attorney Hill stated, We admit that Mr. Schauberger is dead, but we deny the defendant was the cause. We shall show that the defendant was confined to his home more or less the day of the tragedy. It is not denied that the old man was out of the house, but we shall show that he was not on the 9th Avenue crossing. He was at a pool hall, sick, and left in a short time. We shall also explain the finding of the cartridges and shall show that McLennan was not the only peg-legged man in Nampa at the time. So, this is important. The first defense witness was a meteorologist from Boise who testified about the weather conditions of the day and when the sun rose and set. Next was a civil engineer who was brought to the stand, and he discussed a map that was created by the prosecution. He refuted the times that the eyewitnesses reportedly spotted Kenneth. Finally, a power company electrician was then brought up, and he discussed the streetlight which had 250 candle power and mostly lit the south side of the tracks, not the north side where Kenneth was apparently seen. I wish we still described lights as candle power, like the way that we describe right. how, like, how fast horse or how fast cars can go as horsepower. I wish that yeah, instead yeah, of yeah. like, like oh, it's 80 watts, I wish it could be like, it's 120 candles. I feel like lumens is like the modern way of saying candle power, but also I'm not a electrician. Uh, candle power is yeah. way cooler. It is. It's way cooler. <laughs> so their star witness is brought up. He is a former Nampa policeman who testified to seeing another man with a peg leg wandering around Caldwell. And he said that this man was smaller than Kenneth and he appeared to be about 35 to 40 years old. And it was noted that he seemed to be a transient, that many people had spotted begging throughout the town right around the time of the murder. The defense also brought an African-American man who lived in the same alley as Kenneth, and he stated that he had spoken to Kenneth early in the day while he was in bed with his head in his hands, and Kenneth had asked him to get a neighbor woman for him. Her name was Miss Jacox, and she had taken care of Kenneth due to his age, and she had regularly visited with him and brought him food and, and even at some point made his bed. And when she was questioned, she said, yeah, one time I was making his bed, and he had an unloaded pistol underneath his pillow. So not helpful, but uh, she admitted it on the stand. 
She talked about a time when Kenneth wanted to actually fire the gun through the roof. He had been drinking, and she decided, okay, it's time for me to get out of here. So she walked off, and a couple minutes after, she heard a gunshot. And the next time she visited, there was a hole in the roof of his little cabin. And she said she had visited Kenneth the day of the murder on March 14th, and that he was homesick, pale, nervous, vomiting, and she gave him water and prepared supper for him. And while she cooked, she noticed the revolver sitting on a shelf. She told Kenneth that she had been followed by a man earlier in the day, and Kenneth offered the revolver to her, but she refused it, which, if she had taken it, I wouldn't be telling the story right now. Anyway... After she left the cabin, she said she saw another peg-legged man who was smaller than Kenneth. And when she was cross-examined, she admitted that she had refused to return to Kenneth's house while the gun was loaded because Kenneth had been drinking and was delirious. They also brought Kenneth's roommate, finally, John Blakely, who testified that he had hid Kenneth's revolver because he feared Kenneth would take it to his head to use it. He was worried his roommate would commit suicide. So he talked openly about how often Kenneth had the gun and how often he had unloaded the gun to prevent Kenneth from making bad decisions while he was drinking. The evening of the shooting, John had led Kenneth to the outhouse in the alleyway, and when he went back inside that little cabin, he took the revolver and hid it in the door casing. He brought up how ill Kenneth was, but also how much Kenneth had been drinking around this time. The final day of the trial, May 25th, saw only a couple of witnesses before the jury was taken to Kenneth's home to investigate that as, as a scene. Also, the shanty. Is that a normal thing to do for juries, is to like, take them to the scene? They don't do that anymore. Yeah. They just show them. Do they just show them photos, or do they actually take them to places? They actually take them to places. Uh, so, I like, for instance, a, a huge example is the O.J. Simpson trial. That jury was taken to his home, and... There were a lot of things that were altered, a lot of photos that were updated, and instead of having, like, anything that seemed... Like, problematic. Yeah. Any any photos that might deter the jury, those were taken down and replaced with, like, photos of him golfing and doing things like that. So that's one of our most famous examples. Okay. The jury was brought back, and they were out to deliberate for 7 hours and 48 minutes, and they finally reached the verdict at 1.01 a.m. Guilty of murder in the second degree. Mm. Kenneth sat unperturbed like he had sat through the entire trial, unmoved by anything. He's taken to the county jail and uh, watched under heavy guard who worried he might attempt a rash act on his own life. Four days later, on May 29, 1923, 77-year-old Kenneth was sentenced by Judge Ed L. Bryan to from 20 to 40 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. Now, he wasn't taken to the uh, the prison immediately because he filed for an appeal. And in November 1923, that goes through. And in April of 1924, while waiting for his retrial while in the Canyon County Jail, he catches strep throat, mm. which had, quote, found a ready victim in every Canyon County prisoner. Ugh. Unsanitary conditions in the county jail and the fact that isolation was impossible added in spreading the disease among prisoners. Most of those incarcerated in the county jail are young men and rallied quickly from the disease, although several were critically ill for brief periods. At one point, diphtheria was feared, but laboratory tests showed only streptococcus infection. That's, uh, that's quite the testament to um, something called social distancing that we've right? been practicing and the, the vulnerable populations. I mean, I don't want to stand on a soapbox here, but... At least from our perspective, yeah. maybe when this comes out, it won't, uh, it'll be different. But uh, 
it's still important. Absolutely, yeah. So he had to actually, he was taken to the hospital because he was hovering between life and death, as, as the newspaper described it, for several days. And it was about three days he was in really critical conditions in the hospital. While, you know, the rest of the prisoners in the jail, most of them are in there for prohibition crimes. They're healthy. They're they're fine after maybe, you know, a night of, of some, you know, sore throats. So, yeah, absolutely. You were totally right. He finally recovers. And in October 1924, the Supreme Court brings up his case. And finally, in January 1925, after two years in the Canyon County Jail awaiting his appeal... Kenneth's case is reaffirmed, and he is found guilty and finally sent to the penitentiary for murder in the second degree. Wow. He's driven from the Canyon County Jail to begin his present term on January 17th, 1925. So, his intake. Kenneth McLennan, number 3455, crime, murder in the second degree. Age, now he's 78. Height, he's 5 feet, 6 and 7 eighths inches tall. Weight, he's 199 pounds. Build, stout, hair, gray, eyes, gray and blue, complexion is medium, his mustache is reddish, he was born in Scotland, October 12th, 1846, occupation, railroad man, he was single and listed no children, both of his parents died when he was 48, somewhere around 1894-ish, and he left his parents home when he was 24. He had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Presbyterian Church. He had four years of schooling. He was intemperate, but uh, didn't use any other drugs. His closest living relatives were listed as two friends, Roy Durrock and C.F. McDavid, both in Nampa. The condition of his teeth were bad. He had $55.25 on him, as well as a watch, a purse, and a knife. And he listed his port of entry as New York City in 1869 lived in Idaho for 30 years. He had no army service. Uh, he was sentenced May 29th, 1923 to 20 to 40 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. And his battalion shows that he had his right leg just above his ankle amputated. And it also noted that he had large ears and a double chin, which <laughs> I, I have never seen that before, the double chin. It did make me <laughs> chuckle, I will not lie. His intake form, sent from the prosecuting attorney, has a ton of information, which led me down different rabbit holes. And when asked if Kenneth had ever been in trouble for a criminal nature before, he wrote, We have no positive proof, but understand that he served a term in the Oregon Penitentiary. Also, that years ago he committed murder in Oregon. This, however, is only rumor. There has been nothing but minor difficulties since he came to this part of Idaho. I have to tell you, I dug and dug for... Any Kenneth McLennan or anything like that in mm -hmm. Oregon. And I did not find it, but uh, maybe I'll do a follow-up if I do end up coming across that. It's been difficult researching from home, so yeah, I will say. I, I, I understand. Now, when asked about the criminal tendencies of Kenneth, he wrote, When drinking is vicious and dangerous. And stating the details of the crime, he wrote, The prisoner had been intoxicated for several days prior to this crime. A part of the time he had been confined to his bed. Several months before the crime was committed, the railroad authorities had discharged him because he had been intoxicated while performing the duties of flagman at Nampa, and the further reason that liquor had been found in the flagman's shanty. He considered Sam, the other flagman at the time at the same crossing, responsible for his discharge, and while Mr. Scharberger was on duty the night of March 14th, the prisoner went to the crossing and shot him. 
asking if he was a menace to society and an habitual criminal or a man who made a mistake, the attorney wrote, I consider him a menace to society and a dangerous man to have at large. Around this time at the prison, most of the men, they're working in the shirt factory. They're making hundreds and hundreds of shirts at this point. You know, that's not a a super labor intensive. It doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting, so he may have been involved in that. Around 1928, they would have opened up number three house, which is the first cell house with plumbing. So he would have seen that being built at this time as well. He had quite a few letters, which had a lot of information, which helped me flesh out the beginning of this episode here. Uh, A letter arrived to the warden on December 16th, 1925, from M.G. Hogue, a lawyer in Eugene, Oregon, saying that he had heard a Kenneth McLennan had landed himself in the Idaho State Penitentiary. And he wrote, I once knew a man by that name in Crook County, Oregon. He was on the Fagan Ranch at the same time I was on Cherry Creek. He was a dark-complexioned Scotchman. If this is the same man, show him this letter, and if not, there is no harm done. And at the bottom he writes, P.S., I knew him in the year 1889 to 1890. The warden responded two days later that Kenneth had remembered him, and after that, the two men reconnected. They probably were writing buddies from then on out. This is the juiciest letter here. So a letter arrived from Bend, Oregon, on February 3rd, 1926, saying, I am writing to you to ask about Kenneth McLennan, that was sent there from Nampa three years ago, this spring. Is he still there, or what has become of him? I will tell you who I am. I am his daughter. If he is still there, don't let him know I wrote about him. He is there for murder. Please let me know, will you? I will be very thankful to you. Yours truly, Miss Emile Seidel. And the warden responded on February 6th, 1926, with all the information about Kenneth's sentence and followed up. He's getting along nicely, and his deportment while here is good. We shall hold your letter in confidence and not let him know of the inquiry. Huh. That's really interesting. Did he have a daughter? Was this person real? There was a Democratic Socialist who was the mayor in Milwaukee, and he had, uh, his name was Emil Seidel. So this is in Milwaukee. It's not in Oregon, but... uh. He was basically the Bernie Sanders uh, right around this time period. <laughs> Other than that, I, I found one Emil Seidel. He would have only been about 10 years old living in uh, Oregon at this time. And his wife would have been even younger. So I don't know her real name. I don't know anything else about her. So I wish I could find the real, find the answer. Ah. Listen, welcome to the life of researching women. Just right. Just yeah, saying. I know. <laughs> There are so many articles. I had, I think I have 64 pages of newspaper articles just on him. So I have a lot to work with. <laughs> you do. And, and women, especially when they're married, uh, and especially, I would say, before 1970, don't have identities oh, yeah. of their own. They are Mrs. Husband. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so difficult. Another letter arrived February 15th, 1926, from the Dalles, Oregon, stating that a man named Duncan McLennan was found dead along the highway. And the funeral home director wanted to find living relatives. And his handwriting was almost indecipherable, but this is what I could pick out. We are trying to find his relatives, and we have understood from a friend that there's a brother somewhere near Nampa working for some sheep man. Please notify the brother. 
and scribbled in the corners a note from the postmaster in Nampa, who actually received the letter initially, to the warden, saying, uh, It has occurred to me that Kenneth McLennan sent up from here for murder may be the man this party is looking for. So it's like this letter just keeps getting passed off. And the warden actually calls Kenneth into his office and interviews him, and Kenneth insists that he didn't have any relatives living in the United States. He was alone here. Did he have a brother? Did he have a, a daughter? Did he have a wife or anything like that? I don't I, I mean, know. I, I wonder if he did and was just trying to protect them. Like, that would be that would be really interesting to know. Because, I mean, like, the, the, the whole brother thing I can understand is sort of like, oh, it's probably just a misunderstanding. But the daughter thing, like, who, like, what random person is going to be like, this will be a good joke. Like, I'm going to write right. the warden, see if this guy's still there, and, like, pretend to be the daughter. But, like, don't tell him that I wrote. Like, that... That yeah. has to be someone who's actually related. Yeah. That, other than that, his, he had a pretty bare file other than these, these few letters. And there there's no real write-ups about anything about his incarceration. So the next thing I know is that he dies while serving his prison sentence at the age of 87 on wow. March 1st, 1933. And his official death certificate lists that starting in 1931, he had been suffering from degeneration of his liver, which oh. ultimately led to his death. So you remember that mausoleum he created in 1918, right? Mm-hmm. Had he not invested in it, he would have been buried in Boot Hill in the prison cemetery because he didn't have family or other right. people you know, to really take care of him. So he is his body is taken to Nampa and buried there. And... On findagrave.com, there's this complete write-up from the Idaho Free Press. Freed from the bonds of prison walls after 10 years, Kenneth McLennan, 88, returned home today and was placed in the mausoleum, which he had prepared for himself more than 15 years ago, in quiet Kohler Lawn. A few friends remembering his kindness when he was a railroad crossing watchman were at the crypt to hear the final rites. Murderer is a classification in which this gray old man with a peg leg was placed when on May 26, 1923, he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life behind iron bars for the murder of S.B. Shawbarger, crossing watchman. Scotch snuff and pillow slips were the only things he wanted in his prison home, and he used to ask me to send them to him, says Mrs. Bessie Blackman, his guardian. Not long ago, he wrote, To a dear friend only, please send some of them three-cent stamps. Miss Blackman sent the stamps and many times had his watch repaired for him. He died penniless for his last money he had spent to have the mausoleum built and to pay for his defense in the trial of Caldwell ten years ago. He traded the only property he owned in order to buy a lot at Cullerlawn for his last resting place. He was a Scotch Presbyterian, and he was the best sport you ever saw, Bill Lynch said today. Bill, one of his old friends, was at the cemetery and talked with the other who remembered the old man's generosity. Velma, my little deaf girl, used to run away from home, and he would bring her back, recalls E.S. Van Houten, who helped to get the vault in order before the burial and to seal it. Yesterday, Lois and Harston were arguing about which one of them the old man gave the most nickels to, Mr. Van Houten said. There are others, too, who remember his fondness for children. Johnny Applegate, who was five years old then and living on 14th Avenue, remembers him. Particularly Johnny and his sisters, Orma and Lola, used to pass by the 9th Avenue crossing on their way to school when Mr. McLennan would give them pennies and nickels. Guilty, 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 he confessed sadly when Miss Blackman asked him not long ago if he was being punished for a crime that someone else had committed. 
Those flowers are just all right, but I can hardly see them, he said last Saturday, when Miss Blackman brought him a bouquet the last time she saw him. He thought that Mr. Schalbarger had double-crossed him, causing him to lose his job as watchman, and that was the motive for the killing. At the trial, it was brought out that he had practiced for days shooting into an old stump in his yard to perfect his aim. Those who knew him said he was obsessed with jealousy of the man who took his place as railroad watchman. Hmm. Wow. It seemed like he was kind of friendless throughout the trial, but uh, to have people who took care of him at, at the end of his life and have a woman who's his guardian who's bringing him flowers and all this stuff, I, it just shows like the complicated nature of crime, criminals, of, of everything involved with all of this, like yeah, with totally. prison and yeah. What an interesting Ooh. story. I think what it's easy to forget when you visit the sites is that these inmates are people. They have mm-hmm. lives. They have people in those lives. They have people who love them and people who don't. And they have emotions that are complicated. And that's something that's really important to, to remember. And that's the point of this podcast. Absolutely. I think I wrote his like short biography. He's out in the Faces exhibit, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I, I yep. do remember like reading the newspaper article that said that they knew it was him because there were uh, peg leg marks in the dirt. And I just remember like doing a total face palm and like, dude, come on, yeah. like. Right. But yeah, no, that was awesome because I didn't, I didn't know all that detail. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now more than ever, history is an essential resource. Knowledge of our history provides context for our lives today. In these unprecedented times, you can show your support for cultural and historical programs by contributing through Idaho Gives, a program of the Idaho Nonprofit Center designed to bring the state together, raising money and awareness for Idaho nonprofits. From April 23rd through May 7th, 2020, you can support nearly 600 organizations around the state, including the Idaho State Historical Society, through donations to the Foundation for Idaho History. Please consider taking a moment to support our agency by visiting www.idahogives.org. Together, we can ensure funding to the organizations that make our state great. Well, Sky, what do you have for us today? Well, I have... An inmate whose crime seems boring, but who is um, really anything but. So I, today, am talking about number 8446, June LaVon Skinner. Um, oh. She is one of our forgerers, of which there are many women. But again, it's like, it's not it's not all boring all the time. <laughs> so um, my sources, I actually have a pretty limited source base, but that's because she actually had quite a bit of sort of social history and things like that in her file, so I didn't have to dig quite as much as I normally do. So um, her inmate file was probably my biggest source, Ancestry.com. There were several Idaho Daily Statesman articles for her and for uh, sort of a rabbit hole that I went down. And then I used a Wikipedia article for the the Magic Valley Cowboys, um, which is sort of my, my rabbit hole, and you'll see uh-huh. what that's about. So... June LaVon Skinner was born on July 24th, 1930 in Delphos, Iowa. Her father's name was actually June, June as well, uh, June H., and her mother was Virgie. 
born Virgie Smith, but June H. and Virgie Skinner, obviously, were her parents. Her father was also born in Iowa. He was a general farm laborer. He served in the Army during World War I, and he worked as a seasonal workman in Arizona and California, but actually maintained a home in Twin Falls for quite a bit of his life. Her mother was also born in Iowa and, as sort of was usual for the time, was a stay-at-home mother. June was the oldest of four children. Uh, It was her, uh, a sister Vivian, who is two years younger, a brother Virgil, who's five years younger, and the baby sister Rexine, who was seven years younger. She said that she was always close with her siblings, quote, that their tie was strong. So when she was eight years old, the family moved from Iowa. They moved first to Washington and then to Oregon and then to her father's farm in Twin Falls. And this is where she would remain. And as she got older, she developed a bit of a rebellious streak. She described herself as, quote, bullheaded and often manipulated her parents into getting whatever she wanted. She quit high school either in ninth grade, according to her mother, or in 11th grade, according to her. I don't know why there's that discrepancy there. Seems like kind of a big difference. But anyway, regardless, uh, in her early teenage years, she quit high school and then she got a job at a laundry and dry cleaning company called parisian inc parisian incorporated she actually operated the mangle uh, so a smaller version of what you see when you visit the laundry at the old pen and then she did some various jobs around the laundry as well she eventually started to learn how to dry clean which was a very specific process but she didn't really consider herself like a dry cleaner She just sort of worked at the laundry, and she worked on and off there for about five years. Now, according to her social history, around 1949 or 1950, she was actually arrested in Twin Falls on a charge of assault and battery. Um, There aren't any details about that, and the case was actually thrown out of court. And so I don't know what that is about, Um, the the authorities don't seem too concerned with the details of it, I think, because the case was thrown out. In 1950, two days before her 20th birthday, on July 22nd, 1950, she married Grayson J. Kitchen. I think he went by James, which is what that his middle name was. James was actually an Idaho State Penitentiary inmate, number 7556, and he was on parole. He had been arrested in 1949 on a charge of first-degree burglary. Oh. But their marriage, uh, I think, as perhaps could be ascertained by the fact that he was a former inmate, their marriage was pretty tough from the beginning. Apparently, he had been returned to the Idaho State Penitentiary as a parole violator after beating her so severely that the police got called. She claims that he beat her most of all when he was drinking, that he was jealous and over-possessive, and that she said the drinking was really the main source of their marital discord. But regardless, I think because partially because he was returned to the penitentiary, she filed for divorce in November 1951, and that divorce was granted a month later in December 1951. So they were married about a year and a half. The physical abuse was a huge issue, as it should have been, and then I think the fact that he was returned to the penitentiary made marriage difficult to maintain. Now, within about six months of this divorce, she actually had been periodically living with two other sort of sketchy characters. Um, One, his name was Don Bonowitz, and she 
was, quote, quite serious about Don. She thought about marrying him. And in fact, she loved him so much and was so serious that she actually had not quite a tattoo, similar to um, an inmate who I have talked about before. She actually used a pin to carve his name into her rib cage. And yeah, which is, I just can't fathom it. I can't, I, I don't understand. So she had what was essentially a scar of his name across her rib cage. I'm not sure how big it was, if it was really, I would imagine it would be fairly little. I would hope so, because that would hurt so much. Um, and it's, it's actually on the upper part of her rib cage and on her bertillion, it's described as scratched in. Oh, wow. So, yikes. No, thank you. So she, yeah, yeah. No, I'll just take the tattoo. Thank you so much. <laughs> so she'd been living with Don, but she'd also been living with a man named William Kelly. Now, William Kelly, she called, quote, just a friend. She was not as serious about him as she was about Don. And sort of why she's living with two different people will make sense here in a little bit. But before we get into why that is, I want to take a little detour into what's going on in Twin Falls in the 1950s. I thought that this was kind of a fun break. Normally I would go over, you know, the history of the town, but we've already gone over Twin Falls. And so I want to talk about something that was going on in Twin Falls in 1952, and that is the founding of the Magic Valley Cowboys, which was a baseball team. So, on January 13th, 1952, the Idaho Daily Statesman announced that Rupert Tommy Thompson had been hired as the manager for the new Twin Falls baseball team, the Magic Valley Cowboys, who were part of the Pioneer Baseball League. So it's a minor baseball league, and I think it goes up into most of southern Idaho and down into Utah. And Rupert Thompson had actually previously been the manager for the Salt Lake City Bees, which is actually still a minor league baseball team. And so on April 1st, 1952, spring training opened up for potential players. And there was a, uh, an Idaho Daily Statesman that profiled some of these potential players. So there was a man named Bobby Long. He was a pitcher who had previously played for the Cincinnati Reds, but he had become ill and had to drop competitive levels. So he was trying out for the Magic Valley Cowboys. There was a Boise Junior College infielder named Merlin Howard, a pitcher named Clifford Burgess. He was from Shoshone. And the Kimberly High School basketball coach named George Kyle. All of these guys were trying out uh, for the team. I don't know if they made it. It didn't, uh, didn't follow that story through, but they were at least there trying out. So on April 26th, the season, it was the season and really the series, I guess, the the club opening for the Cowboys. And they actually faced the Boise Yankees. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they were affiliated with the New York Yankees. And so for those of you who don't know, with minor league baseball teams, you often get affiliated with the larger uh, major league teams, and you sort of work your way up. Um, you start in a minor league, so you, and then you sort of have to work your way up to the, the major league. And so when you're affiliated with a team, often you'll take either like a similar name that's why they were the Boise Yankees or um, they just you just sort of are affiliated with them and and work within that program 
So they faced the Boise Yankees. The game was played in Boise to a completely sold-out crowd, and this was the first Pioneer League baseball game since the retirement of the previous Boise team, the Boise Pilots, in 1951. Now, interestingly, the team actually reverted back to the Pilots after the 1953 season. But in 1952, they were the Boise Yankees. And so I found a really awesome Idaho Daily Statesman article about this game. The title of it is Fans Vie for Seats at Yank Opener. And so I want to read um, sort of, it's, it was actually a pretty long article, but there were some, some kind of funnier things that they had. So if you don't, if you'll bear with me, um, we'll learn a little bit about this, this opening game. So it says, the stands were jam-packed at game time, but Play ball was delayed because there were still fans waiting to file through the turnstiles. Tom Canavan, who was manning the amplifying system, pleaded with the crowd to, quote, get chummy, crowd together, your neighbors waiting outside to get in. Word reached the press box that Governor Len Jordan had arrived and was searching for a seat. Canavan came to his rescue when he urged the folks to move over and make room for the distinguished baseball fan. They did. Gordy Williamson, who managed the old Boise Pilots for part of the 1949 season and who now presides over a dental chair here, served as master of ceremonies in the brief pregame proceedings. While the Boise City Band, sitting in the stands, played a lively march, members of the Cowboys and Yankee squats trotted out to their dugouts and lined up against the first and third base lines. Williamson then introduced Cowboy manager Rupert Tommy Thompson, who stepped to the microphone and said, quote, I know we have a lot of friends in the stands, unquote. He drew a cheer. I'm glad to be back in the Pioneer League, Tommy continued. It's one of the best Class C leagues in baseball. More cheers. A four-man color guard, represented by the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, marched on the field. The crowd stood out of respect for the colors. Mayor Russell E. Edelson was introduced, and he walked briskly from the Yankee dugout to the home plate microphone. He said he appreciated the turnout, quote, and I hope you will come out to every game like this. Aww. Johnny Deathlefson, which is a great name, Deathlefson, Boise backstop, playing his first year in pro ball, got a big hand when he snagged a high foul in a sensational catch. The ball came down close to the screen behind home plate. Deathlifson ran into the wall of the stands and fell on his back, but he was clutching the ball for the third out to retire the Cowboys. Nice. Henry Waterstone, official scorer, surveyed the crowd and cracked, quote, Well, it's better to see people looking for seats than seats looking for people. <laughs> With the stands cramped to capacity, several hundred fans were permitted to sit in the grass on the field in foul territory back of the left field line. Quote, last time they had spectators on the field was in 1947, and there were fewer seats in the stands then, unquote, Harry said. John Wyatt, leadoff man for the Yankees, got the first hit of the Pioneer League season in, in Joe Devine Stadium. It was a looping double to the center field fence. He won a rousing cheer from the crowd and a $5 bill, which Alan Pearl Robbins of 1004 Park Boulevard had put up for the first Yankee hit. Uh-huh. All right, almost done, but I think this is such a great article. Just so there would be no mistake about his place on the, on the Yankee roster, the armpit high mascot bore the number one half on the back of his uniform. While the Yanks were at bat, he stood near the dugout and aped the gestures of the batters, rubbing his hands together, stamping his feet, or taking the same stance as the man on the plate. And so that is the uh, mascot. But he, uh, I think he was, you know, similar to uh, like a costumed mascot. Yeah. And then the last paragraph says, opening night looked like family night. Kids were liberally sprinkled in the crowd. Many of them wore baseball caps with red, the favorite color. Whenever a foul ball fell into the stands, the youngsters swarmed all over their elders and looked like schools of porpoises as they dove for the prize. (laughs) 
So this sounds just like a really good time. Obviously, this game took place in Boise, but you can see that there's a lot of support for these these classy league baseball teams. Hopefully, we'll be doing that all together as a community again soon. Yeah, seriously. I know we're all already tired of cooped up and no sports and <laughs> right. What a wild time. So during the 1952 season, the Cowboys went 55 and 77. In 1953, they went 48 and 83. Uh, so they had a bit of a bad season that second season, especially. Starting in 1954, the team became affiliated with the Chicago Cubs. And in 1959, they went 64 and 67, but they actually won the league championship that year, and that was their only, the team's only championship within the Pioneer League. Mm. In 1961, they were affiliated with the Philadelphia Phillies. In 1964, they were transferred to the San Francisco Giants, and in 1968, they transferred to the Atlanta Braves. But unfortunately, the team disbanded after the 1971 season. However, during its history, the team actually had 873 wins and 900 losses. So that's pretty close to about a 50% win, which is not terrible, but it's not super great. So they were they were a pretty mediocre team, but they would I think they brought a lot of cheer to to Twin Falls and um I mean the fact that they they were a team for almost 20 years considering it was just a classy league I think is is kind of important. So if yeah. anyone has any like cool memories about going to um even Boise Yankee games or uh, Magic Valley Cowboys games, we would totally love to hear about it. Um so yeah, let us know on Facebook or send us an email cuz I think that'd be really cool. Do you have you ever been to a Hawks game? I have. Yeah. Yeah, we we try to go every 4th of July. We go and, okay. you know, that's where we see the fireworks and everything else. Right. Yeah, I haven't been, actually. I oh, should go. Yeah, I know. Definitely. I need to go. But And then just another fun fact is that nearly a dozen Magic Valley Cowboys players would actually go on to play on uh, major league teams. So, oh. um, and, and if you want a complete list, the names, unfortunately, as a as a non-baseball fan, did not mean much to me. But no. if you're a, a super baseball fan, they might mean something to you. And then just one last little note uh, that the Twin Falls population in 1952 was about 17,600. Pretty decent size. Yeah. All right. Now, let's get back to June Skinner. So on March 18th, 1952... June and Don were out together, and they, quote, started talking about how dead things were. June says the idea of having a fling was brought up. Now, not a fling is in, like, a romantic fling, but a fling is in, like, let's get something going. <sighs> so, they go to the Idaho department store in Twin Falls, and June forges a $75 check and signs the check Mrs. William Hernack, who was a real person. After cashing the check... June and Don drink some more, they meet up with another couple, and all four of them take a road trip to Wells, Nevada. And upon arriving in Wells, all were quite intoxicated, which sounds like then it was kind of a miracle that they got there, Um, that someone is drinking and driving across state lines, which is very scary. But um, in Wells, June and Don register at the Wells Hotel as Mr. and Mrs. D.W. Larson. Over the next several days, they continue drinking, and Don wrote several bad checks to, quote, supply them with money. So this is just a total spree. This is what she means by a fling. They are just out basically living off of free forged money. 
And so, according to June, she eventually sobers up enough to realize what they were doing and realizing that it's bad. And so she insists that the group return to Twin Falls. And so they get back to Twin Falls. Obviously, they understand that they don't go to the police, but they aren't sort of, they're not running exactly. And so they started their fling on March 18th. And about eight days later, on March 26th, June is picked up by the police and she confesses to everything. Because she is so willing to basically confess to everything, instead of going to prison, she is placed on a two-year probation on April 26th. But Don is arrested and sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary for forgery uh, in April. So he heads to the prison. And so June, being on probation, goes back to work at Parisian Inc., which is that laundry service, I should say. Then, on May 9th, so this is about a, about a month later, June's parole officer gets a call that she is in the Turi nightclub in Twin Falls, and she is quite drunk at the club. Oh, no. So the parole officer goes to pick her up and says that she got, quote, lippy, and so her officer took her to the county jail overnight to basically let her sleep it off, get her bearings, and then he'll sort of talk to her. And so he and the judge sort of decide to give her, quote, just one more chance, and I think the reason that they do this is because she states that, quote, she will stay away from these places from now on, no matter whose feelings she might hurt by not going to them. So Uh. what that sort of insinuates is that she enjoys being around people. She's perhaps a bit of an extrovert. And so despite the fact that she's on parole and she knows that she shouldn't be consuming alcohol or going into nightclubs, that her friends come and say, come on, don't be a square. Let's go out. Let's go have a good time. And she does. Yeah. You know, she says she doesn't want to do, she won't do that anymore. She doesn't want to go to jail, I think, like Dawn did. So she, she promises that she'll do better. And so they decide to give her one more chance. Despite this, however, <laughs> just a month later, oh. she goes on, quote, kind of a spree with William Kelly. Now, if you remember, she had been living with William Kelly and they lived together in the f- document in her file says is the Triumph Mine, which is one of the company houses. So... It has to be William Kelly's, com- like, whatever company he works for. It sounds like it might be a mine, but I, it doesn't say, and I couldn't find anything on what that was, but it had to have been an industry that they got to be less common in the 1950s, but especially in sort of the early 20th century, companies wanted so much control over their employees that they literally created neighborhoods that were meant specifically for the employees. They lived there, they shopped there, and oftentimes they actually weren't even paid in real wages. They were often paid in basically company money to spend at company stores. Um, I don't know if that's what this was. It could have just been a house that was owned by the company and they were still allowed to sort of do whatever they wanted in town. I'm not sure, but regardless... I think it was a house for the company that William worked for, and he and June lived together. So they lived together in this house. On June 10th, so just a month after she had been caught in the club, they leave. And they go on a spree. And so during this time, both William and June forge several checks. The one that she gets caught for is a $25 check made payable to June Garcia and signed again by Mrs. William Hernack. Both were arrested on June 14th, 1952. 
and uh, it kind of goes without saying that she had violated her parole by forging more checks. She had also violated it by leaving the probation area without permission of her parole officer and also by associating with undesirable companions and specifically with a married man. Kelly actually had been married in 1950 to a woman named Dolly Hot Stetler, and they didn't divorce until 1953. So she was, uh, June was associating with a married man. And so she pled guilty to the charge of forgery and received a 14-year sentence. Kelly did the same thing. And so June entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on June 21st, 1952. And here are her statistics. In for forgery... Female, race white, age 21, birthplace Delphus, Ohio, complexion medium, nationality American, eyes brown, hair brown, height 62 inches, so she is 5 feet 2 inches, weight 129 pounds, build small, deformities none. She was vaccinated. It asks if she has any tattoos. It says, not tattoo, but scratched with pin. And she's got two of those. And I'll talk about the other one here in just a second. She drinks occasionally. She did smoke, did not gamble, did not do any drugs. She was not a member of the Catholic Church, but did prefer that religion. Her education, as I said, she says that she quit in the 11th grade at Twin Falls Senior High School. Her occupation was dry cleaner in laundry, and her Idaho residence was 11 years. If we look at her Bertillion, um, as I said, she has that dawn scratched into uh, the upper part of her ribs on the right side of her body. There is another um, sort of quote-unquote tattoo that's scratched in, and it's, I think it's the initials LSDB. LS, or like LaVon Skinner and DB Don Berkowitz. Okay. Um, and that is scratched into her left bicep, which again, I just, that's horrible. Um, <sighs> other than that, she had several scars all over her body. She did on her left knee actually had a burn scar about the size of a quarter. Um, oh. don't know what that's about. Her teeth are fair. She had five small scars on her right knee as well. And then she had just several scars kind of up and down her arms. And my guess is that might be from working with a mangler. Yeah. Because yeah, that's totally. not a, it's not an easy job. <laughs> so scary. It's kind of scary. Oh yeah. Kind of scary. But kind of interesting that she didn't have tattoos. She just had those scars, basically scar tattoos. So while she's in prison, she has a social history taken. And upon her intake, she stated that she liked to dance, she liked to watch baseball and football games, and also mystery movies. But she did state that one of her hobbies, unfortunately, was drinking. And so this is a quote from the social history. It says, quote, she maintains that she always has control over her drinking, that she can take it or leave it alone as she pleases, that in the past, when she has become intoxicated, she has done it because of her own decision. She declares she has made up her mind to quit getting drunk, but she was noncommittal concerning quitting drinking entirely, would not commit herself to that. <sighs> and then there's, there's an evaluation that uh, sort of the prison officials, they do a, an overall 
evaluation. And so this is what her evaluation says. It says, June appears to be of normal intelligence. There are no gross indications of psychotic involvement. During the interview, she was not very cooperative, was quite closed-mouthed, replied to questions only yes or no, would not elaborate or volunteer any information, or proceed with the conversation, was generally unresponsive. Her delinquency consists mostly of her going on two sprees with two different men, writing and cashing at least two forged checks. June reveals that she always resented direction and discipline, that her parents tried to discipline her but they were unsuccessful, that she usually managed to get her own way and do as she pleased. She recognizes her willfulness, her stubbornness. During the interview, she was very noncommittal in her statements. She usually answered by saying she didn't know why. She made no real effort to explain. She declares she, quote, does things when she is drinking, that she doesn't know whether she would do the same thing if sober or not. She has no adequate explanation for her delinquency. Her present attitude is not favorable. Prognosis is considered fair, but with a reservation of doubt and uncertainty. I feel like both of ours to this week, it's alcohol. That's the issue. <laughs> Some inmates are willing to sort of admit that they have an issue. She is not willing to admit that. She thinks that she has it under control. She says she can take it or leave it. But I I don't know if that is necessarily the case. But she's going to have to do without it because now she is in prison. So um, we do know a little bit of her life in prison, which is quite rare for our ladies. So she worked as a dishwasher and a general house worker. The matron declared her, quote, good prisoner, willing worker, has a very good attitude. So while she's in prison, her attitude is starting to change. It's noted that she attended religious services in the women's ward regularly, and she had a good institutional adjustment. So she didn't struggle with going into prison. I mean, she probably did emotionally, but she didn't let it affect uh, how she did her work. She also had an attitude adjustment. And so uh, this is taken, I think, about 10 months later. And it says, quote, she is now much more cooperative, more open in her manner, more outgoing, though somewhat reserved in a way, less suspicious and more responsive. So overall, I think she has come to accept what she's done and also has come to accept her punishment. And so in doing so, she kind of changed her attitude and and was willing to be a little bit more open about herself and, and what she had done and what she had sort of gone through. After about 10 months of life in prison, H.J. Clark, who was a parole agent, made a parole investigation on June's behalf. He noted that her parents were willing to let her come back home if she wanted. Her job at the laundry was, quote, waiting for her, and the boss was willing to help her adjust back to normal life again. He did note that the only thing that stood in the way of having a successful parole was her potential relationship with William Kelly. But if you remember, she said that she wasn't really serious about him. It seems that perhaps he was more serious than she was. William was still married and actually had children. And by the time that they were looking into this parole investigation, he had not gotten a divorce yet. And so Clark sort of recommended that before her release, quote, June should be made to realize the seriousness of this tangled love affair and have nothing to do with Kelly until he has straightened out his marital difficulties. And so they they talked to her. They sort of took all of this into consideration. And she was actually released on May 21st, 1953. She served 11 months of a 14-year sentence for forgery. Wow. So at first, she struggled to adjust to civilian life again. You know, you spend almost a year in in what is basically a bedroom. I mean, it's really, it can't, it's no bigger than 
than like a large bedroom, basically. Even outside of the cells, the cells are basically the size of the closet that I record in. And then the, you know, the, the larger room is, is not that much bigger. And that I would imagine that you would, you would have a difficult time returning back to life. She moved back into her parents with Twin Falls, which often as an adult uh, can be a really difficult move if you're used to being out on your own. It's hard to move back with your parents sometimes, but she did. They were very supportive of her. She did maintain her job at the Parisian Laundry. The boss wow. was, quote, well satisfied with her work. And she she became a lot more responsible. She actually used money to buy herself new clothes and to help take care of her parents' home. And so I don't know if that was perhaps a condition of sort of her living and going back and living with her parents that she had to help contribute to sort of the well-being of the family and of the home, or if this was something that she decided to do on her own. But regardless, she really started to take responsibility for for her life outside of prison. So a year later, on May 21st, 1954, she called her parole officer, H.J. Clark, and asked if she might be able to get a final release. And Clark writes her back and he says that he admits that she had done quite well on parole, but told her that she should maybe just try another month on parole. And if she does well, then she would be released. You know, um, I think sort of because she first had trouble adjusting, he wanted to make sure she was really fully adjusted back to to normal life before they gave her that final release and so she kind of goes about her life and actually um doesn't call for another three months i think because she didn't want to seem too desperate i think she wanted it to come from her parole officer for him to say okay you did it you're ready but she didn't do for another three months so she finally calls him after three months and she asks again can i have a final release so in august of 1954 she calls, asks if she can get, um, she says if she got final release, she wanted to go live with her sister in California and, quote, stated that she had learned her lesson and got what she asked for. She holds no grudges, unquote. Uh-oh. So so she really adjusted and changed her life and understood the punishment that she had to endure, um, which is so admirable. And so... Because of this, Clark recommended to the parole board that June receive final release, and June was granted final release on September 14, 1954. A month and a half after her release, she married a man named Harold Nussman. Harold Nussman was a World War II Army vet and a railroad worker who was eight years her senior, and he was from Hillsboro, Illinois. They divorced sometime before 1961. There was no official divorce record that I could find, so I don't know the exact year, but they had been married probably somewhere between five and seven years or so. On May 29th, 1962, she married a man named William Carl Nissen, which is quite similar to Nussman, but <sighs> they are different. Interestingly, she actually listed herself as single rather than divorced on her marriage record to Nissen. And Nissen was a construction worker, a World War II vet, and a divorced father of three. One of his daughters had died in 1943, unfortunately, but she basically became a stepmother to two children. And June and William remained married until William's death in 1998. I'm not sure if they had children of their own. I don't think they did. I think they that she, being a stepmother, uh, she was content with that. I don't know the relationship with her stepchildren. I would hope that sort of given the responsibility that she took on after being released from prison, that it, she would have worked hard to develop that relationship. But of course, I, I don't know. And there's nothing to suggest they did or did not get along. 
And so June died on June 21st, 2006. The tombstone claimed that she was born in 1931 and that she was 74 when she died. But if the 1930 date is correct, she would have been about 75. As far as I can tell, most other records state 1930. And I think the date of birth that she gives is 1930. So I don't know why there's that discrepancy, but she would have been about 75 years old and she is buried in the Twin Falls Cemetery in Twin Falls, Idaho. And that is the arrest and life of June Levon Skinner, number 8446. Nice work for a forger with ribcage tattoos. <laughs> I know. Ouch. It sounds like can't. she really changed her life around. And, and she did. I, yeah, I, I love stories like that. There's some. There's such good redemption stories uh, in this prison, uh, and, and I think yeah. in all prisons. Uh, and so I, I love. I love to see it. Same. <laughs> all right, Sky. Well, well, anything else we need to say to our? I mean, our listeners. I don't think so. Stay home. Stay safe. Yeah. Stay healthy. I'm excited for who I've got next week. So <gasps> get ready because it's a heck of a story. Ooh, yay. I don't know who I'm going to talk about yet, but (laughs) I will let you know as soon as I do. (laughs) Well, I I can't wait. Well, everybody, thank you again for tuning in. We will see you all next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. Take care. Stay healthy. Stay inside. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.